0: I'm Oshan, and welcome to the Musing Mind podcast, where I get to interview folks exploring the spaces of consciousness and economics, uh, or philosophy of mind and the social sciences. And in that spirit, I am really excited to publish this conversation today, which felt like a very uh, fruitful waypoint along that inquiry. So today's conversation is with Ruben Laukenen. He is a postdoc cognitive scientist at the University of Amsterdam, a contemplative practitioner with experience in traditions like Advaita Vedanta and Theravada Buddhism. He has consulted for the OECD, and beyond his kind of cog sci, uh, research domain, he writes on topics ranging from education to artificial intelligence to psychedelics. Our conversation today is centered around an absolutely brilliant paper uh, that he recently co authored with Helene Slachter the paper proposes a model that interprets meditation through the lens of predictive processing, which is one of the leading uh, paradigms in cognitive science. But abstracting out a little bit, one of the themes at play through the whole conversation is this question of finding a healthy and robust balance between the constructive and conceptualizing tendencies of the predictive mind and the deconstructive effects of practices like meditation or substances like psychedelics. Just like my my previous conversation with Chris Letheby, there's an implication that we have over-indexed on constructions and conceptualizations as a culture and under-invested in the value of deconstruction. I mean, cognitively, not uh, philosophically. But of course, the more that we lean into deconstructive modes and practices, the more important the frameworks we use to guide reconstruction become. So the conversation on the whole has roughly three segments. The first half hour sets the scene, establishes important baseline ideas. Uh, Then, over the next 30 minutes, Ruben provides this just awesome overview uh, of the model, a step by step guide to what happens in the mind as we sit down on the meditation cushion and he goes through three levels of meditative depth. So when we first sit down and then a kind of intermediary level of depth and then the the deepest levels, and then the, the final kind of 45 minutes, we take those insights and zoom back out to explore broader questions about the purpose and value of meditation, psychedelics, and then questions about society. Right, what's the role of our socially constructed contexts in helping us reconstruct cognition in the wake of deconstructive practices? Or as I like to talk about, in the presence of forces that are always reconstructing us to begin with. Okay, uh, as always, you can find more information about Ruben or anything we discuss in the podcast on the show page that can be found at musingmind.org/podcast or just go to musingmind.org. Click podcast at the top and then click on Ruben's episode. You will find all the links um, and a semi-decent transcript. If you want to stay up to date with new episodes of the podcast, you can subscribe on any app. You can also join the newsletter, which you'll also find on the Music Mind website. And if you'd like to help support the show, uh, sharing it on social media is a greatly appreciated service. Uh, Each episode is still climbing to larger and larger audiences, so we're still seeking out new listeners. And if you'd like to financially support the show, which is necessary for me to keep doing this, and honestly, as of right now, uh, the show is teetering on, on the brink of viability. It's, it's losing me money overall, but that's an opportunity. I'm thinking through a number of ways to begin changing that. And the most direct is to become a Patreon supporter, where you give a small monthly donation, maybe $1, 2 or $3 a month. And that stability uh, is really what makes this podcast possible. So a deep thank you to all of the existing patrons Um, And I'm actually quite excited about thinking through how to take this podcast to its next iteration. But until then, and without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ruben Laukkonen. All right, uh, Ruben, welcome to the Musing Mind podcast. I am incredibly grateful that you've taken the time to join me here today.
1: It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: So our main focus today is exploring a paper and a set of ideas that you have co-authored recently with Helene Slatter, um, which brings together meditation and predictive processing in a way that I find really sheds light on both. Um, It offers kind of novel ways to understand what meditation does to the mind, kind of using the conceptual framework and language of predictive processing, um, which is now a a pretty well-established collection of ideas in in cognitive science and and maybe more generally, right? And there's this, this relationship between constructive tendencies of the predictive mind like counterfactual thinking which we'll get into and deconstructive practices like meditation maybe not limited to it um, and how we might think about the the sorts of balances and harmonies that can be struck between these kind of opposing forces construction and, and deconstruction but b- before getting into all of that I wanted to start by asking about your relationship to these sorts of questions because it's clear that you're, you're at home in both the scientific paradigm, you're a postdoctoral fellow studying cognitive science, um, as well as the contemplative paradigm. Uh, you have, paradigm. You have a, a background in traditions like Advaita, Theravada, and so on. So by way of an introduction, I wanted to ask you whether you began in one tradition and later got into the other, right? Were you a, a big meditator who was kind of later drawn to science? Were you a scientist who made his way into meditation, and kind of how you experienced the relationship between these two domains in your own life.
1: Mm, yeah, for me, it was really in parallel. Uh, right mm. from the beginning, I think. If I think back, maybe it was even first I had this um, realization about the importance of, of science and uh, you know thinking rigorously about things. Um, I think I was about 16 when I had this sort of insight that um, – You know, it was important to measure things really carefully and to um, systematically investigate things and replicate and run experiments and so on. And it was only, I suppose, a bit later that I had some experiences that led me down a contemplative path. And I think that kicked in when I was about 18, 19 years old. But from that point, which is still pretty early on, it was like the two were feeding into each other all the way through i mean both are absolutely necessary in the sense that um, one of them contemplative work meditation gives us models and a better understanding through direct experience of our phenomenology and uh, how to understand first person experience and then the science allows us to see you know what might uh, uh, replicate across across individuals and you know our uh, socially shared uh, reality, mm. yeah. And I think insights from one are are necessary to have new ideas in the other, and uh, I think they feed each other in this way. And so I I think they've been um, kind of yeah re- working uh, in parallel, sometimes in harmony, sometimes in disharmony. And um, <laughs> there there's an interesting ongoing dance happening uh, for me between these two two ways of looking at life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a famous quote. I I came across this one a while ago and and I saw that you actually shared it on your Twitter recently. It's a Charles Darwin quote. And it's this passage where he, he says how he used to be so enamored, kind of so enthralled by poetry and music uh, when he was young, but as he spent decades kind of engaging in analytical inquiry and that sort of scientific mentality uh, he found that he kind of lost that that right brain, poetic, contemplative capacity to, say, just bathe in the beauty of things. And I wonder if, if this at all resonates with your own experience or, or maybe your own fears, right? I'm assuming that since you shared it, you have some relationship to this concern about maybe over-indexing oneself in the scientific and analytic domain. And, and that almost kind of squeezing out or grinding away our capacity for this other kind of contemplative mode of being. And and certainly, it can be a little of, of each, you know, you mentioned how they're kind of complementary, but I, I thought it was interesting. And it's always to, to go back to that Darwinian idea of how spending too much time or one in one or the other kind of on this theme of balance that I think will come up a lot today. Uh, one tends to affect the other. <laughs>
1: I think this really gets at the heart of the disharmony aspect between these two. I I certainly, in my own experience, I I do still, in a way, worry about this and, and sometimes struggle to find the balance. Because if I've actually, I've just kind of gone through this process in the last couple of weeks, I had a paper deadline. And so I spent like, two weeks doing nothing but <laughs> being abstract basically you know it, it, totally engaged in conceptual work uh, and highly theoretical work as well and in a way it's it's an analytical meditation so i wouldn't say that it's totally contrary to contemplative practice because i think we can think of science as a kind of analytical meditation but yeah. i don't think we ever want to do too much of any kind of meditation and so what i do find anyway when i do let's say this kind of uh, scientific meditation for too long, is I, I end up feeling a little bit detached and a little bit uh, disembodied and a little bit less, well, really able to enjoy what's happening in the present moment. And and so I've developed quite specific personal um kind of strategies to deal with this where i know that sometimes i have to go through these periods where i'm really engaged in the abstract in the thought realm and i'm doing this kind of work and then i really have to put a day or two aside not have to but feel that it's really helpful to to de-abstract and then i i focus on a kind of yeah embodiment practices or um uh, meditation, where I really encourage a kind of inner silence and an inner state of being, and and particularly giving uh, attention to emotions and and activity in the body. And so th- this, I I sort of visualise myself as occasionally kind of climbing up the abstraction hierarchy and doing science, and then I, then after that I have to climb the ladder. Or, or the mountain rather back down to, to earth really and, and life and, and uh, yeah, to kind of bring the color back and, and the juiciness back to, to existing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Um, and we'll, we'll get very much, I'm glad you set up this metaphor of kind of moving away and coming back. Cause I think we're going to uh, we're going to riff on that theme a lot. So let's, let's dive into your paper. Um, and the structure of it is very clean. Uh, very, after the introduction, you have a section where you describe predictive processing, followed by a section kind of describing meditation and the types or styles that you're using in the study. And then you kind of formally present your theory, which brings them together. And I, th- I think we can do a similar thing here. By way of the introduction, I'll just read a quote from the paper that I think gives the gist, and then I'll see if you'd like to add anything And then regarding predictive processing, we don't need to dwell too long there. I've discussed this on the podcast before, uh, specifically with Chris Letheby. So we can assume a decent familiarity on the part of the audience with that framework. And honestly, the same with meditation. Most listeners here will have enough experience with meditation to get the basic idea. And this all kind of lets us get into the really fun part of exploring how they can be brought together. So a bird's eye view of your theory Um, Early in the paper, this is a, a mildly abridged quote. You write, In this paper, we argue that this new understanding of the brain as a predictive organ coincides well with meditation, which aims at deconstructing the mind from within in order to allow one to experience things anew, no longer wholly determined by acquired mental habits. Our main contention is that focused attention Open monitoring and non-dual meditation, those three styles of meditation you mention, gradually bring the practitioner more and more into the present moment, thereby progressively abating hierarchically, i.e., temporally, deep predictive processing in the brain. So maybe in a dangerously reductive sense, I could say that your paper establishes a sort of spectrum where on one end is the pure present moment. And as one moves towards the other end of the spectrum, you accumulate more and more layers of abstraction, of conceptualization, and these almost serve as a buffer um, between awareness and the present. And you make this this really wonderfully uh, surprising observation at first, but then it's obvious in retrospect that what we ordinarily take to be the present moment is actually not. It's way off base, and that the present moment that, for example, a guided meditation from Headspace or some mainstream commercial app describes to you where you feel your breath moving up and down, you hear the the gentle wisps of rustling leaves outside or the texture of your shirt fabric on your shoulder. All these experiences that we often hear painted as indications of the present moment to bring you back are actually signaling that we're still abstracting ourselves away from what you would consider the actual present moment. So, I thought we could start here by asking you what the difference is between this conventional present moment that we're used to hearing about and what you mean when when you write about the present moment
1: mm. well, that's uh, yeah, beautifully uh, summarized yeah in, in, indeed, I think the colloquial kind of understanding of the present moment that um, most meditation teachers used to start with, and I think rightly so is our sensory experience and so that yeah that indeed often is the breath or it might be the inner sound of a mantra or uh any kind of sensory experience in the body and we say that you know pay attention to the present moment um and and guide people towards their sensory experience but but of course um not only really from the predictive processing standpoint but from the just basic assumptions of neuroscience we know that sensory experience is determined by past experience so any any perceptual or sensory experience we're having where it's impossible to have that without projecting the past onto it so even if we think just about our visual field like you can't uh, experience curvature or distance or any kind of differentiation between objects unless you you project the past onto them right and 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 to make that clear i mean what's what's uh hitting the retina or you know the sounds that you're hearing the vibrations these are um indistinct i mean that there's there's pure light there's pure sound and it's organized in certain kinds of regularities and it's from those regularities from ultimately the electrical signals that reach the brain that we are somehow able to derive a meaningful perception so perception and sensory experience is by definition um, uh, created through the lens of of past experience um, and therefore, it is an interpretation. It's already a construction based on the past. Now, that's one reason that what we colloquially perhaps think of as the present moment, I wouldn't say that's what they think of as the present moment in in, in sort of when you speak to contemplatives who have been doing this for a long time or or really Buddhist teachers. I don't think they make that, that claim. I think people mostly know that ultimately where where the process is going is 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 deeper than that but that so that's one reason that that sensory experience isn't truly the the present moment but even even just even built into having a sensory experience is also the self that's observing the the sensory experience so there's another construction there then there's also the fact that there's the attention guided towards something. So there's also the guiding of the attention by some inner sense of agency. So all of this is still non-present moment. This is all a, a construction based on past habits, basically, and requires mm-hmm. some sort of integration of information over time. So in that sense, it's not really the present moment, but there is still something really cool about this ideal of the present moment because it can kind of get deeper so you can think of this sensory present moment as a kind of stepping stone towards a deeper and deeper um, present moment that goes even beyond uh, sensory experience goes even beyond the observer of the sensory experience and even beyond the uh, construction of guided attention and this is at the heart of many many uh deep practices in many different traditions that then kind of try to release the habits of the mind all the way to to come to rest um even beyond the construction of our our sensory uh experience or yeah making that sensory experience not the focus um of the practice yeah mm.
0: yeah I love the way um, you described this. You have an article up on the Science of Mindfulness website titled, What is the Present Moment? And there you write, time, or rather the organization of regularities in time, is the very currency of construction within the brain. Without molding the present based on the past, there simply is nothing meaningful to experience these jolts of electricity that climb your nervous system are empty of meaning meaning, without the brain and the body's capacity to regurgitate its own meaning. And I I really like the distinction you just introduced between the sensory present moment and then this deeper present moment, and one as a stepping stone towards the other, because getting to the sensory present moment um, is relatively easy enough with instruction, right? If For example, I'll go back to Headspace. If you have an app that is instructing you to direct your attention towards the immediate sensory environment, mostly we can do that almost on command. But getting beneath that to this this deeper present moment is not so simple, right? You can't just consciously decide to do that and then do it. It generally requires serious training and practice because this kind of requires going against the way we've evolved and and been, been, been wired to perceive over thousands of years. And we can imagine this. I mean, being in what we would consider the deeper present, which I think we'll unpack a little bit over this conversation, would not be the most um, adaptive or fit for survival state over the past thousands of years of of our species, for sure. Um, And maybe it's dangerous in that sense, but it's also a recipe for kind of changing the way we understand all other moments of experience as, as you've mentioned, as these constructions away from the present, that once you've gone down into that that depth, you come back with a, a bit of sight that I think casts a different light on, on all the other ways that we've, we've uh, previously interpreted what the present is or, or can be. Mm-hmm. But we can take that and we can move right into predictive processing, um, sure. take our first stop here. Uh, as I mentioned before, we can assume a basic familiarity, um, it being a framework that says the brain generates these internal models of the world. And that may sound implausible until you remember that every dream you have at night is a demonstration of how good at internally generating uh, convincing world models the brain really is, um, and that brains are driven to minimize the prediction error in their models, so they use stimuli from the outside world and kind of cross-check their models. Uh, but you spend a good amount of time in your paper talking about Carl Friston's work, who was instrumental in developing this whole framework, uh, but, but he adds this further dimension, which is his free energy principle, And this I haven't discussed on the podcast yet, and I would like to, because Friston's free energy principle comes up in almost every interesting theory of consciousness I've seen today, Um, but it's kind of slippery. I've I've had a little trouble kind of wrapping my head around it. So here's a quote from your paper uh, that introduces Friston's work on free energy, and then we can kind of build from that. What does the brain do? What is the basic imperative of a living organism? Evolution and gene selection theory were able to provide answers to core questions at the level of biology, explaining how life can emerge and adapt over time through natural selection. However, a unifying account of life within the living has yet to take hold. Organisms in their relatively short lifespans also change, adapt, behave, think, and feel, and seem to possess some inner imperative to survive beyond procreation. What is at the heart of this compulsion? According to the free energy principle, Carl Frist in 2010, the basic imperative is not pleasure seeking or any kind of simple reinforcement scheme. The imperative is to maintain a boundary between oneself and the world, or in other words, to resist the second law of thermodynamics, i.e., the tendency for isolated systems, including the human organism, to become more entropic over time. If an organism loses its boundaries, it becomes more entropic as the constitution in the world becomes as its constitution and the world become increasingly inseparable. In order to avoid the dissolution of its boundaries, what the organism does is make predictions across many timescales to produce autopoetic actions, loosely self-producing actions, that minimize the tendency towards entropy. This ensures the organism continuously revisits the limited set of states conducive for its survival. So the usual story goes something like, you know, the predictive processing framework um, ultimately says that organisms are driven to reduce prediction error. And if you go beneath that, it's, it's because it's good for survival, right? The better that I can plan and predict using my internal models, the easier it'll be for me to survive. But the, the free energy principle puts a bit of a spin on this, or it goes even a level deeper rather than saying we're driven by this kind of intrinsic or even genetic imperative for survival for its own sake. It says we're driven to survive because. That helps maintain a boundary between ourselves and the world to resist entropy. Uh, another idea that, that's part of this predictive world and also a really core part of your theory is this idea of counterfactual depth. Uh, you offer this this wonderful metaphor where what meditation does is it prunes the counterfactual tree of the predictive mind. So let's start with what a counterfactual is first of all what it has to do with predictive processing, and maybe we can work our way towards uh, what it would mean for meditation to prune the counterfactual tree.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So we can think of a counterfactual as anything that's uh, counter to what is. So you know that there are certain facts you could say of our present moment experience, and this is what we could say is. Uh, well, again, that's not really present moment, but there's not really counterfactualizing with sensory experience. There's there's already an interpretation there that the system has made, and that gives us our, our senses. And from there, we have this uh, incredible capacity, um, especially as, as humans and, and I'm sure many other organisms as well, to then um, consider possibilities that are not So you can consider anything that um, any step away from to next moments in time is already a counterfactual because that is a counter to the fact of what is happening. So I can imagine a future scenario thanks to counterfactualizing about possibilities. and And I can think of many different possibilities. I can think of possibilities just one second from now. And as I extend that tree even further into the future, um, the possibilities get more and more vast. So if I think of just the next moment in time, there's probably not so many, many counterfactuals that arise there. But as soon as I go higher into the uh, abstract world of, of the mind and the future, the possibilities get vaster and vaster, and of course mm-hmm. harder, harder and harder to predict as well. So you can see as, as I... As, or maybe you can as as you think further and further away from what, what is the here and now the counterfactual tree goes greater and greater in the the possibilities that could be imagined mm. The possibilities for the next moment and tomorrow are in a way limited. But as I think further and further into the future, the the counterfactual possibilities get greater and greater. And I can think of possibilities that could happen to myself, but also to you and other people. And so counterfactualizing is really the imaginative realm of human experience. That's what also allows us to create works of art. I would say it's it's what allows us to come up with a fiction uh, story. It's it's probably what makes us human uh, in many ways.
0: That sounds uh, very similar to um, uh, Yuval Noah Harari when his first book *Sapiens* came out. I remember one of the kind of distinctive ideas that I kept seeing taken from it was the 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 idea. I think he called it the cognitive revolution. The thing that made our species our, spu- our species was this capacity for Fictions such as corporations, such as gods, right? These, these kind of intersubjective fiction, uh, fictions. And maybe we're not talking about intersubjectivity here, but k- thinking about counterfactuals in this way, that makes a lot of sense. And, and they also play a really interesting role in an idea that you mentioned in your paper, and I've seen it elsewhere, like uh, Thomas Metzinger's work, where basically we experience the self as a thing that exists, that, that we are, Because when our predictive models imagine the future and they model, for example, um, our organism reaching for a glass of water or jumping out of the way of a barreling car, they imagine that there is an agent, that there is someone there who is doing the reaching or the jumping, the the cause of the actions being modeled. And that prediction that a self exists who is doing that uh, basically solidifies such that when we're in the present, experiencing the thing that was predicted, we experience that agency, that self that was imagined to be the cause of the action. Uh, maybe in simpler terms, we predict ourselves into existence. And counterfactual depth here uh, provides a really interesting layer, an additional layer to understanding that process, I think. Um, because because of counterfactual depth, it's the layers of the counterfactually modeled worlds that exist within our minds, that kind of gives rise to this persistent and singular sense of selfhood. And if you follow that logic out, the more counterfactuals that we hold in mind, the more scenarios of ourselves or others uh, as agents that we hold in mind, literally the the higher the quantity, the more selves that we are predicting, it's almost like uh, counterfactuals are a multiverse in our minds and the more layers, the more different universes being modeled, they all get stacked on top of each other. And then in this present universe, we experience the weight of that stack almost as the thickness or the, the solidity of our of our selfhood.
1: <laughs> Sounds <laughs> exhausting, huh? It does. <laughs> <laughs> and it, this is exactly it, right? Uh, and and just one, one small nuance to add there. Indeed, the, the existence of the self is itself already indeed a kind of counterfactual so to even predict a behavior to behave we there needs the system needs to make an inference of itself in that next moment in time in order to be able mm. to deal with it properly so the very currency of action is having a self because it takes mm. a, a model of the body to be able to to model the next action in time and and i really like this uh, picture that you build from there because you know Let's, let's imagine that we started with this simple model of our own body because it's the thing that's so immediate to our experience. And then there's, of course, the bodies and the, the actions and the, our relationships to other people. And then that uh, sort of expands infinitely um, to include all kinds of complexities and, and uh, complex relationships and emotional reactions. And, and this creates the, an, an enormously intricate web that the system has to constantly keep active, and and you know that that has to be really resource intensive to constantly be predicting this uh, complex landscape of of selves and everything else for most of our uh, the time ta- of the day that we are awake, and so kind of the promise of some of these meditation techniques and and what we discuss in the paper is that this this enormous tree of counterfactual existence that we build and then maintain throughout most of our waking life, that there's the possibility that we can learn techniques that allow us to, in a way, at will, drop this counterfactual tree to 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 drop this heavy burden that is to constantly uh, model ourselves in reality, and to to have breaks from that, have windows of silence where the system can consciously recuperate, and not just during sleep, which, as you you rightly noted, sleep is also often a very active process, and and I think this is also something that many meditators report that um, that as as meditative depth increases and certainly this happens on on retreats also the sleep gets lighter and there's less activity during the sleep and so then sleep also mm. becomes a more restful experience because now you know whatever processes the s- sleep is engaged in because of course there's important purposes for sleep and and probably a lot of that is to do with you know dealing with all the counterfactuals that we've been creating and maintaining during the day to put them all in their places and, and you know perhaps prune our models and so on. All of that gets a bit of a rest as well, if we can consciously um, de-abstract, let's say. Mm. That,
0: that's really interesting. This is this is a tangent, but I th- it's an interesting point. Um, your point about meditators on retreat and the sleep getting more restful. Um, a, a guest of this podcast in the past, Eric Howell, who's a neuroscientist, Uh, pretty recently published a paper called The Overfitting Brain where he gives a theory for the the purpose of dreams. And on his theory, the purpose of dreams are essentially to guard against overfitting of the predictive system. So if you have Mm. an artificial neural network, one of the kind of persistent problems we're seeing is you necessarily, you train them on data, you feed them data, and they get overtrained to the particularities of that data set. And so they're subject Mm. to biases. And the way you guard against that is you inject noise, random data, and so who else suggests that the point of dreams is to essentially inject noise into our conscious experience to guard against overfitting um, from our you know, biased subset of, of experience in life. And if you, if you take that and you mix it with what you just said, it makes sense. Because as we're going to explore uh, very soon, one of your theories is that meditation essentially uh, helps us disengage from all of this predictive modeling. As you mentioned, we kind of cut down that counterfactual tree and so it makes sense that if that persists in sleep, if you're reducing the kind of predictive activity, y- you would experience it the same way, right? You would mm-hmm. kind of have less overfitting. You would have less of this, this process ongoing because the entire predictive system is slightly downregulated. Um, but anyway, putting that aside, <laughs> um, you, you mentioned meditation here, and I want to pick this up. Um, we've covered predictive processing. Uh, so let's take a moment and, and put this all together. Um, the, the question I think that I want to ask is broadly, right? What is it that meditation does to the mind when we understand it through this predictive framework? And let's take this step-by-step because you, you do this in a really nice way in the paper. Uh, your model looks at three techniques or or really stages of meditation. We can describe them as, um, one, two, and three. You have names for them. They're open monitor, or sorry, their focused attention is first followed by open monitoring followed by non-duality, um, And you describe how each stage has particular ways, particular things that are happening in the predictive mind. So let's start when we first sit down on the meditation cushion, and maybe we begin by focusing our attention on the breath. What's going on there? And then we can move into, as we settle into a middle depth of meditation, what's going on, and then we'll move into non-duality. But in that first stage, what's what's going on in the brain?
1: Mm. So... I, I want to acknowledge that there's many, many meditation techniques there and uh, um, that exist, and they're all going to have slightly different um, effects on the brain. And we're narrowing in on three here that um, try to give us a good picture of what we uh, call deconstructive practices. So that's still a, a, a rather narrow set of, of meditations. But just with that caveat in mind, when we begin meditation, we can imagine that what most people bring to the cushion is a pretty active mind, and so this is a mind where there's a lot of thought activity happening, and so from from the predictive processing perspective, this is a system that's engaging in a lot of deeply hierarchical and abstract uh, processing or abstract predictive processing because thinking is yeah, more or less the epitome of, of abstraction, really. So most people spend a lot of their day in a state of, of, of a lot of thinking. And we can think of this as the top of the tree in the predictive processing hierarchy. And so when somebody sits, often the first technique that is offered to them, certainly in the uh, Buddhist traditions, is to pay attention to one part of um usually sensory experience. So this might be the breath, for example. And we'll just take that as an example, but it applies to more or less any other object of meditation. And the instruction at this point is simply to take hold with the attention, this object, so for example, the breath, to guide the attention to the breath. And then whenever these automatic predictions in the form of thoughts arise, and capture attention we turn attention again back to the the specific object which is the breath and so what this is doing from a predictive processing standpoint is basically increasing the precision or we can simply say let's call that just the the importance of of the breath compared to thinking now in in this hierarchy of abstraction any kind of sensory experience is an earlier uh, stage in the construction hierarchy so we're bringing it down the tree uh, we're trimming a few of those branches so to speak and coming into a state that Although is not the present moment, as we discussed earlier, it's closer to the present moment. Our, our, our sensory experience is less hierarchically deep and therefore closer to the present moment. It's less abstract than than our thinking mind. So we're one level less abstract. And we, we also talk about this as a, um, as a move from the narrative self. So that part of our self, our autobiographical self that can really project right to the beginning of our, our, our well, close to our birth and, um, and into the future, this autobiographical sense of self that we have, we're kind of slowing that process down and coming into the experiencing self, which is the embodied experience of being who you are and, um, and whatever senses are arising. So that's one level of abstraction that we've decreased from the narrative to the experiencing by doing this gradual and often initially challenging work of stopping the automatic tendency to, to think, basically, to, to engage in self-centered, often usually self-centered, ruminations. So that, that's what we would say is the stage of focused attention, this movement from the narrative self to the to the experiencing self. Um, and then the next stage after one establishes some stability, let's say, in the experiencing self and is able to, with with some level of effortlessness, maintain um, attention or even if, if one is quite deep in concentration or tranquility or, or, or mental serenity, then one can begin to uh, engage in uh, an, another level of practice where the goal then is to de-reify even from the um, sensory experience and so this is where one engages in a broad category of practices that we've called open monitoring or that um, science uh, many of the contemplative scientists call uh, open monitoring and this this includes um, for example vipassana practice from buddhism and so here because what's kind of happened in this initial focused attention stage is that we've traded one abstraction for another we've we've traded one highly abstract part of our mind which is thinking for another abstraction which is which is sensing but now we're still assigning the system is still assigning particular importance Let's say to sensory experience, but this is, as we've discussed earlier, still uh, an abstraction and and is still a, a form of conceptualization. So even even the breath in this sense is a uh, is a sensory experience and therefore an abstraction. And there's still a lot going on there. For example, the one who is paying attention to the breath and the attention. So then what? these what vipassana practice or open monitoring begins to do is to draw back the preferential nature of awareness so basically this is allowing the system to take a step back from preferring any sensory experience to opening up to the whole field of sensory experience so in predictive processing terms this means that no particular part of any any experience that is arising in the in our current experience we can call that the present moment for now um, is given any more importance than any other, and therefore, in relatively speaking, is assigned uh, less importance. And instead, what one emphasizes is a kind of well unconditional observation of whatever is arising. In experience and sensory experience but also usually thoughts are still arising though hopefully the focused attention practice reduced the extent to which these uh, thinking episodes really uh, take us for uh, a longer ride so then through this open monitoring practice um, there's also of course a progression within each of these techniques but there are several really important things that that happen one is, as I mentioned, this de from sensory experience—the tendency to take it as as real and to identify it as 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 oneself or even important to oneself—and instead engaging in this unconditional observation. So there's this sense of uh, releasing um, any kind of preference, and with that. As, this, as there is this cultivation of an unconditional uh, ability to observe, also we propose, and this is also what's, what's claimed in, in the meditation traditions, arises the possibility for insight to occur. So this is a, a practice that's really emphasized as important compared to FA because it allows the system and the the observer to gain a better understanding of what is, well, what is the nature of their mind? What is happening there? Because what, what in our normal waking consciousness, whatever arises, we sort of take it for granted to be real and we kind of run with it. But now we have this op- opportunity to observe what arises from a, a, a more distant vantage point and so then by observing these things for the first time the system in a kind of meta way um, because the system is made up of models of models of models and we do a lot of modeling of our own models in this <laughs> metacognitive sense and so in in through this vipassana open monitoring open awareness kinds of practices the system can learn about itself and it can see the patterns that are arising it can see what is triggering it into uh, episodes of of Uh, suffering of um, mood swings of strong emotions which uh, kinds of narratives continue to pop up and take us for rides and so through this process it can learn about itself in this sort of almost psychotherapeutic way but it can also then gain these kinds of more fundamental insights into the very nature of the kinds of things that are arising Mm. So that's the the more fundamental kinds of insights described in Buddhism. Then, of course, is uh, for example the fact that all of this is arising by itself; that there's no kind of inherent agency. There's no self within the phenomena that are arising. They, they're happening automatically, and that they're impermanent. Not everything that arises doesn't stick for long. It kind of go, it, it also goes away, and that uh, arising phenomena are. Uh, and our attachment to them our grasping to them our tendency to assign them importance um uh cause suffering mm. um so impairment suffering and and not self uh so these are also these more fundamental insights that uh yeah i, I think make a lot of logical sense um if the system is observing uh, is is getting a a better model of automatically arising predictive processing, basically. Mm. Um, And predictive processing, uh, the fact is that from from that perspective, all that arises is is a construction. It's uh, constantly changing depending on our experiences, and it doesn't have any kind of essential self in the sense that it is just a predictive process derived from past experience. So, that's, that's the kind of open monitoring, if I can say, in this short period. Um, right. <laughs> but then, even in the open monitoring and the past practices, there are still built-in certain models, right? There is still a, mm-hmm. a subject observing an object. There is still some level of self that's um, engaging or observing uh, the Sensory and 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 uh, thinking mm-hmm. processes.
0: This is still the experiencing self, right? That's the terminology they call it.
1: Exactly. This is still the experiencing self, and so there's many different ways. I think that the system can go then to to go a bit deeper than that, um, and we can talk about different practices from different traditions because I think. There are many actually. And uh, we, we focus on, on non-dual practices that um, are particularly important, uh, for example, in the Mahayana traditions, uh, so uh, Zen and, and Tibetan Buddhism, but I think are also really at the heart of Advaita Vedanta, or so-called non-dual traditions from uh, Hinduism. And so basically, in these practices, what one aims to do is basically relax even the fundamental habit of engaging in a dualistic observation because again even in this experiencing self format as we sort of discussed at the beginning of the podcast is that is built in a sense of self perhaps very subtle at this point and deeper vipassana practice but as long as there is a sense of observing what's arising experience there is still also the observer and there is still some guiding of attention and there is also some vipassana allows the attention to be captured by something in order to gain insight into it so it it sort of permits this processing to take place and it's really important because i think these kinds of practices do a lot of work in transforming the system to, well, perhaps be more resilient or 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 compassionate, have a better understanding of how the mind works, but still to push the mind or allow the mind to rest the mind even more deeply, because because this observation is still a doing, then these non-dual practices come in, and there. In a way, things get a little bit. The meditation instruction get a, gets a little bit tricky because now what you're really asking the meditator to do is to do nothing <laughs> in the most deepest way. But if anyone, if if one engages in trying to do nothing, then this is another form of doing that the system engages in, and so this is further predictive processing, and there's still a self trying to do nothing, mm-hmm. and so. To encourage this deep kind of relaxation or deep kind of letting go, words like awareness are used um, to suggest, you know, the recognition or the discovery of awareness and awareness that's already there, something that's already here. It's it's um, yeah, the very very core ground foundation from which this whole act of meditation is taking place. The very act of meditation, the very sense that one is meditating with some goals, with some intentionality, with with some hope of fixing the system of healing or to be happier or to get from A to B in any sense whatsoever needs to be released because all of these are predictions away from the here and now, the true Here and now. So, from the perspective of this this non-duality, this unconditioned, this um, ground, this non non non-inferential space where the system is not projecting the past, the whole narrative of meditation, of of a path, of a meditator, of attention, of of insight, the whole whole drama is just an inference still is still just an abstraction and it's an abstraction that we can't choose in the ordinary sense to let go of it somehow has to happen and so this is this is where from a um yeah i suppose from a teaching meditation Um, perspective things get awfully paradoxical because you're trying to give an instruction to do something that one cannot do one one the the system has to somehow let go and so different traditions have different techniques to try to make that happen some some rely on this sort of um, yeah direct pointing out from uh, a, a teacher to a student this is this is one way that's used often in well, I think in a way by all the traditions, but very explicitly with, within Tibetan Dzogchen and Mahamudra. And, right. um, but I think it also happens within Zen, and I think it also happens within Advaita Vedanta that this teacher-student relationship is really I- important, that there's a kind of component of transmission there where the teacher can, through their own understanding of how to enter this space, create the possibility for the student to, or, or highlight to the student where they're stuck where they're still predicting <laughs> themselves where they're still caught to allow that prediction to to let go to put it mm-hmm. in those terms um and then there's more sitting practices like within zen there's shinkantaza, which is uh the practice of just sitting <laughs> or yeah the kind of um yeah just basically getting the allowing the system to to be in such a stillness and using the the posture and the context really to kind of create the conditions. I mean, I think of these meditations kind of just trying to create the conditions for the system to to let go of its habitual tendency of prediction without falling asleep, basically.
0: Mm, literally, yeah.
1: Yeah, because I mean this is more my own speculation, but I think what base usually happens with people it's, well, it's a speculation, but it's also, I think, from my own meditation experience that what, what happens is as soon as the system starts to de abstract, where it starts to stop engaging in, in habitual thinking, it basically just falls asleep. So, as soon as the, our ego structure, our, our constant predicting of ourselves starts to relax, we basically zonk out because we're just tired of constantly doing that and um, we're not able to maintain awareness. But then, by Engaging in this, in this posture, being very upright and and keeping the arousal level balanced, uh, we train the system to basically maintain the consciousness while allowing the rest of the system to go to sleep, and I think. Something like shikantaza is a is a is a really nice expression of that because it seems to to me from the outside and from from my own expa- practice in Zen is that you're basically just setting the conditions for the system to turn off by itself and, and while maintaining awareness while keeping the system conscious. Right. So that's one way. There, those are a few ways. So directly pointing. So, so working directly with the, with the teacher. These setting up the conditions and then another way I think that is really effective, actually, is um, self-inquiry sorts of practices. And this is, well, this is practiced in Zen, where they use koans, but they also, I mean, a, a classic koan is who am I, of course, and this is also the, the primary inquiry from the Advaita traditions. Um, if we think of Ramana Maharshi or Srinasar who who am I in this sort of questioning of of the self and this fundamental assumption of of an observer um is is questioned and um through having this inquiry that kind of basically points attention to the very basic or most fundamental construction Um, which is an assumption based in all of our experience, which is this sense of I, which is a sense of observer. This is the kind of root of the tree of counterfactualizing, if you imagine it that way. By pointing attention constantly at this root, the rest of counterfactual cognition doesn't really have the opportunity to sprout because it all rests on the assumption of a self Of of a constructed self, of a of a predicted self, and from there we can begin this, um, yeah. We can counterfactualize. We can think of ourselves Mm. in future scenarios. We can think of our interactions with others. We can think of our body as a complete system. But it all begins with with this observer. And so by by pointing this the system back at itself, back at the root of that tree, the rest of counterfactualizing doesn't have the opportunity to sprout. And again, your creating the conditions for that model to to perhaps momentarily uh let go so this is this this is a story from the top of the (laughs) the (laughs) abstraction (laughs) hierarchy to to the ground
0: yeah thank you so much for that it was it was a wonderful tour you're right from the top the top kind of tips of the tree branches of, of the counterfactual tree all the way down to the roots um, and I highly recommend for, for anyone listening, hearing that guide you just gave us and putting it in conversation with the section of the paper where you guide us through it together. Uh, it's such a wonderful pair. Thank you for that. Mm. Um, and, and it brings up so much. But I think the first thing I want to point out, um, which you mentioned a little bit earlier on, is that one way to think about what meditation is doing, the mechanism of action, the thing that is acting, it is acting upon um, at least one of the things is changing what w- what they call the precision weighting. Uh, you call this the importance, which is literally refers to the way that the predictive system kind of ranks among all the you know trillions of, of phenomena that are present and sensory experiences present in any given moment. It has to have a, a ranking system to decide what should I pay attention to out of this mass, because you can never consciously attend to all of these things at once. And so it's developed these kind of heuristics it uses. Uh, it assigns precision weighting to different kinds of, of stimuli to decide how important one is. And mm-hmm. so when we step down onto the cushion, we sit down, and we, for as you mentioned, we take the example of focusing on the breath. What the mind is doing is training itself to shift as much precision weighting as it can onto all the stimuli that are associated with the breath. And in so doing, this kind of has a, a backdoor effect of downregulating, of reducing the precision weighting that is ascribed, or the importance, or the salience that is ascribed to all other types of sensory experience, all other categories. And so, your mind begins to single out and focus in and hone in on this one place. And, and as you mentioned really, really nicely, one of the virtues of using something like the breath or a mantra is that... If we go back to the time horizon of the counterfactual tree, these things are in the sensory present. And what that means is that, you know, we're not thinking about something that's three hours from now or three months from now by, by focusing in on the sensory present, as you mentioned, we cut off a lot of the counterfactual tree that, that promotes the abstraction and brings us out. So we're bringing ourselves into that sensory present. All of your precision waiting is transferring itself, focusing on those experiences. And as you deepen into that practice, as you continue to shift more and more precision weighting there, and therefore away from other phenomena, the next move that you do to kind of step into open monitoring is you essentially pull the rug out, or in this case, you pull the breath out, and you leave nothing left for the precision weighting to hang on to. There's no particular thing that your mind, your predictive system is focusing itself on and so in a way you can imagine uh, some beautiful visuals here you can imagine if it was all honed in one very tight beam of light on the breath it just shatters into these these fragments that spread all over they're diffused throughout the landscape of awareness and it's just open monitoring and I, i thought the way you described that movement was really helpful um but then you pointed out again we might not be focusing on anything in particular, but there are still these kind of structural components of how we think these vestiges of the predictive habits, this subject object duality, the experiencing self, um, and these remain. And that's a whole complicated terrain of, of, as you also really helpfully pointed out ways of moving from there into what we might call non-duality. But I I do think though, up in these higher levels of, of the model, they do help us talk about something like, for example, the platitude that meditation quiets the mind in a bit more uh, precise way, right? You're, you're By precision weighting, giving significance to all sensory phenomena, and as that decreases, it's not like anything less is happening in your mind. There aren't necessarily fewer thoughts occurring or anything like that. It's just that the mind is less interested in noticing them, right? It ascribes less significance, um, which allows this kind of broader terrain to open up. But it's not that there's an actual lessening of mental activity, at least in the in the upper levels, I can't speak for below. Um, But this all reminds me of of William James, right, the the American psychologist, who he has this great quote, very famous, where he says something like, you know, our normal waking consciousness is just one type. And all around it, and famously he says, parted by the filmiest of screens, you know, there are all these other kinds of consciousness. And that all we have to do is figure out and apply what he calls the requisite stimulus, and then poof, the film is broken and, and we mm-hmm. fall into them. And the inverse of that I find really interesting. It's that if you never discover the requisite stimulus or you never enact it or practice it, then there is a, a way or a configuration of consciousness that it can feel that you won't experience. Right? The, the way that you described meditation and precision waiting here strikes me as a way of pointing towards a particular configuration of consciousness with a very distinctive phenomenology, very different from our ordinary state, that quite likely the the majority of the human species going way back may not have experienced what it's like because the requisite stimulus, um, like meditation, but I'm sure there are other triggers as well here, um, has not been applied. And you have uh, in your paper, you have a paragraph where you describe this kind of non-grasping state of the mind that emerges. And I'd like to read it here. You wrote that, Non-judgmental experiencing could be said to be the natural state of the system at a lower level of the hierarchy. We therefore propose that as the frequency and temporal span of predictions, such as thoughts, emotions, sensations, decreases, then a hierarchically lower level of the predictive hierarchy, experiencing prior to evaluation of experiencing, dominates." this state is different from focused attention since no experience is given preferential precision weighting and thus attention becomes bare rather rather than object oriented. How frequent do you imagine this sort of consciousness has been across the history of the human species, right? Is this an incredibly non-ordinary state that maybe contemplatives have, have discovered and maybe spontaneously to a few people across the species or are there are there may, uh, a plethora of other ways that we kind of trigger and affect the predictive system this way right how how kind of uncommon do you imagine this kind of thing to be
1: um, my, my answer might might surprise you <laughs> about this i think it's actually really common as as i sort of we sort of stayed in that quote it's it's The natural state of the system when it's not engaging in in evaluation, it's not not engaging in any kind of preferential cognition. And I think we all have experiences like that. Uh, And I think the system is constantly, because this hierarchy is constantly being constructed and reconstructed. So another way you could say that in each moment, albeit too briefly for us to notice, there is a moment where we are non-evaluative before we are mm. evaluative. So it's, it's, it's like we're always evaluative. Also, at a deeper level, we're non-evaluative. And at a deeper level, we don't even exist in the, in, in the way that we think we do. So the predictive hierarchy, you know, it, it seems like we have to go da- on this journey down it and deconstructing. But now a bit more from the contemplative perspective, but also from the predictive perspective, it's all happening now. You know, this 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 whole abstraction story, including all the evaluation and all the selfing, it's all happening now. It's it's all um every level of that predictive hierarchy is is present. So only yeah, i I think it can happen in a situation. I think people also fall into, let's say, even just the non-evaluative aspect of this when when and I think this is why people like a lot of these things that they take on for hobbies. I don't know what it might be. It might be uh, you know, surfing, or it might be any kind of sport, or playing, playing music, mm. or even a good conversation. There's aspects of our predictive processing machinery that become certainly less evaluative, less judgmental. Um, and I think these are all kinds of tastes of that kind of state, but... The difference, I suppose, is with meditation that one kind of consciously inhabits this state. It inhabits it with a kind of awareness that it's inhabiting it at the same time. <laughs> so maybe this is this is kind of unique. Also, even in those initial moments when we, you know, wake up from a nap or or a, a long night of sleep, I think there's moments there we can sometimes catch ourselves in a state of non-judgment of just being of just just relaxing and or you know after a long day of of work or, or a strong session of exercise or something where we just take a we just rest i think the system can come into a state of a non-evaluative presence but there's there's a sense in which that is just recognized with more clarity um, through I think these these practices and with more agency. And so the system through actively inhabiting these states gets it's like it it, it learns to be able to traverse the predictive hierarchy with more um, more efficiency and with more clarity and and the inner models of those states also become more um, refined by mm. making them a more uh, sustained part of our, our lived experience.
0: Right. That, I mean, that leads directly into actually where I wanted to go next, which is, you know, we've looked at how meditation progressively deconstructs the predictive mind and we experience consciousness at lower and lower levels of the predictive hierarchy, I think you're absolutely right and put it wonderfully how this is always happening. It is always ongoing, whether we see it or not. Uh, And these things are fascinating uh, to anyone who is interested in these sort of things. But someone who isn't a meditator or isn't Intrinsically interested in, you know, seeing these, talking about these different states of consciousness that might be lying around. Maybe they're plenty happy with their default state of consciousness or whatever state they have constructed through, you know, a life of doing so. You still offer what I found a very compelling way to think about a benefit of meditation, a a role for it. The question of why should I meditate has an interesting answer, I think, in your paper. Uh, Your claim is that the state of meditation, is one where the counterfactual tree is pruned, but the enduring trait of meditation, uh, the lasting effect that persists beyond the time you're practicing, is that it actually improves the quality of our counterfactual cognition, right? That even though what meditation does is reduce abstractions in the moment, it ultimately makes us better at abstracting, as strange as that might be. You write that counterfactual pruning is, quote, What allows the system to then embody a more flexible and variable or more rich set of counterfactuals post-meditation by downweighting the precision of ingrained habits of mentation? Put simply, the state of meditation decreases counterfactual processing, but the enduring result or trait of meditation may permit a more flexible and rich counterfactual processing in daily life. And this to me was such a wonderful point, and I wanted to ask if you could Expand on this at all? How it is that pruning leads to more flexibility and richness?
1: Mm, yeah, another really nice question, and this may also lead into more uh, constructive practices in meditation as well, which I think are particularly important in, in indeed this uh, then reconstructing our our predictions and our models and ourselves really um, in ways that are more productive. But I think. A good place to start in describing this is um, in in precision, which you described so so well. Um, part of what makes our habits our habits is that we assign them high precision. That's what mm. makes it an ingrained habit that the system inherently assigns high confidence and reality correspondence to, and then takes it to be real essentially and, and then and proliferates it. So by shifting our precision waiting around we are by definition um, loosening the tendency of the system to to engage in its usual habitual responding by by silencing the system by taking a particular posture by reassigning precision by de-abstracting we are yeah literally re-weighting our precision landscape um, and and ideally in a very, uh, you know, the idea is to be open and non-judgmental and therefore reweight our precision in a very, um, well, e- egalitarian sort of way. And so <laughs> this, this, presumably, if we have too, too rigid uh, models, we're too stuck in particular habits, ought to naturally Release some of those tendencies, and therefore permit, uh, indeed, a more flexible way to, to respond to the world. So that's that's one, one way. Um, the other way is, I think, through insight. And so, if the system is, I think, one one, this may be oversimplifying a little bit, but basically by deconstructing and reconstructing the system in this way the system also gains a better understanding of how the system works. So the the meta models that govern the self and the other models are sort of top-down understanding of how our own perception, emotional life, thinking, and behavior, how all of these come about and how they relate to each other and how they affect our sense of self. If the system gains a better understanding of those processes, it's also able to regulate them better. And this also may permit a better functioning in everyday life. Mm. And then there's maybe not the final way, but another way that happens in in most meditation traditions that they also involve reconstructive practices or constructive practices. And these are just as important. Um, And these practices include, for instance, compassion or loving kindness metta meditations um, and also in the more tantric practices like deity meditations or devotional practices or prayer or all of these kinds of things that aim instead to um, then recreate the models in our and and ourselves in a way that's more productive and um, more perhaps more wholesome and so this is another way that the system by – but this is very difficult to do without some some level of deconstruction, right? So it's it's, it's right. really hard to if, – if we're still assigning really high precision to our usual sense of self and to our habits and all of our ordinary kind of counterfactualizing and thinking, it's, it's really hard to suddenly just replace these with another, another set of counterfactuals. And they might not really – get so deep because that counterfactual tree involves of course our whole body and all the emotions there and then as well as our thoughts but if we just try to go from our narrative self to reconstructing a new narrative self without engaging our embodied experience and and the emotions and the lower levels of this predictive processing hierarchy then it doesn't lead to the a deeper change. So I think there needs to be this sort of um, dance or balance between deconstructive and reconstructive practices. And now some, some meditations aim to do both at the same time. So some forms of jhana practices, for instance, in Buddhism, use loving kindness as the, as the very object of meditation and by having that the object of meditation while keeping an open uh, scope of awareness there's some deconstruction can happen but at the same time there's this constant returning of the system to this sense of loving kindness or compassion which then is simultaneously kind of relinquishing or moving the precision weighting away from that narrative but at the same time um uh replacing it with with these other kinds of mind states, um, other kinds of predictions.
0: Yeah, I I love this. I I love this theme, this this balance between deconstruction and reconstruction. That strikes me as so important across so many domains. And you're mentioning and you're pointing out uh, different practices, different approaches, which I think is wonderful. And and it leads me into the question, um, I would love to hear if and how you think that psychedelics differ from meditation. I don't know how familiar you are. I don't know if this is an area of research you're interested in, but how, whether they differ in terms of how they affect the predictive mind. Because I think that we very often, um, we have grouped kind of meditation and psychedelics and maybe spontaneous mystical experiences, your Emerson's transparent eyeball, um, into the same basket. And that makes sense. I get that. Um, But as we get better, at empirical measures, at brain imaging, at just refining our our vocabulary as we learn more in the field. I think we can start to disaggregate this a little bit, and and your paper certainly does by focusing on meditation where there's been a lot of of stuff on psychedelics as well. So do you see any areas where meditation and psychedelics diverge in terms of how they affect the predictive mind?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely do in fact the sort of preprint, pre-publication version of this paper had a section comparing meditation and and psychedelics and specifically mm. e- ego dissolution under meditation and psychedelics um, and psychedelic research is something i am very interested in and i have we we have one yeah paper under review about psychedelics um yeah wh- where to begin there so Similar experiences, and I, and I really agree with the way you've sensed into the field or you know, the broader social consciousness, that there is this sense of lumping them together and thinking that there's something similar going on, that they have similar aims and the same kind of experiences can happen. While I think the same kind of experiences can happen... That I think it, it, on psychedelics, for example, there is the potential for, let's say, non-dual experiences to rise to to potentially have insights into emptiness in, or uh, insights into impermanent suffering and um, um, not self. I think they are probably more rare than we, um, yeah, most people think. I think what's more likely going on with psychedelics and i'm sort of drawing on carhart harris's and friston's entropic brain theory of psychedelics here where it's proposed that um yeah, psychedelics basically have this entropy-inducing effect on the brain in the sense that they relax the rigidity of of our models. So it's also called the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics models, and particularly the idea that they relax our high-level beliefs, the higher levels of this predictive processing hierarchy. And by by relaxing those, then the usual kind of dictatorship that those high-level models have. Uh, have over our low level experiences is relinquished and then you get this an, an anarchic input and and anything can kind of happen and that's why we can get these transformative experiences it's why that people can experience you, you know what seems like almost changes to their pers- personality or they can have mystical experiences they can hallucinate um, the idea is that all of these are accounted for by by relaxing our our high level beliefs so I see psychedelics as, as offering an enormous potential, and we can also talk about the intersection of, of psychedelics and meditation as, 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 as joint uh, practices or, or mm-hmm. complementary activities. But I think more of what happens in psychedelics is to do with the models shifting and causing non-ordinary experiences, non-ordinary states of consciousness that is more to do with the mm, blurring of the boundaries of our new ordinary models leading to new predictions and strange predictions. And also, if you take, for instance, the sense of merging with our surroundings, right, the sense that we're suddenly interconnected to everything, which is such a, an amazing and wonderful insight to have and experience to have the sense that our self is interconnected with everything. This makes a lot of sense if our models are relaxed and our self-model is relaxed and our the separation that we usually infer between ourself and the outside world is, is relaxed and now we start to see these things melt into one another and, and this can be a, 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 a blissful experience to have. But this is a little bit different, you can probably already tell, for example, from the disappearance, the very absence of selfing altogether, the very absence of, of sensory categorization, of reification. And it's also kind of missing this component of, of clear unconditional awareness that is emphasized also in the middle stages of meditation in the vipassana and the open monitoring sort of practices so there, there's a difference here where i think not always but there is probably a conflating of the selfless or ego dissolution experiences that are described in meditation i mean in psychedelics with especially non-duality emptiness and these kinds of discoveries that are spoken about in in yeah let's say buddhism specifically Mm -hmm. and i think there are cases where psychedelics lead to those kinds of discoveries if one knows where to look but i think it's 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 rare I, i i think it's fairly unusual that the Psychedelic experiences naturally start to go into the terrain of, of Buddhist insights, specifically, mm-hmm. and also then the more cross tradition um, sort of non dual experiences um, that we've been discussing.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, when you when you when you're speaking about them, I was. had a visual in my mind and actually before i go to the visual there's there's two ways of describing that that came to me what's going on here the differences the the formal language would be where uh psychedelics are said to relax our beliefs or reduce the precision weighting ascribed to our high level priors which kind of widen the landscape of what our minds essentially allow us to uh think about to experience at all in the first place because the the uh, kind of constraining priors are lessened. They're not as constrictive. Uh, whereas meditation, as you've described it here, simply disengages the predictive process altogether. And so certainly there's a similarity to the effect in terms of having an expansion um, via the, the kind of psychedelic route or the kinds of awareness that maybe you you fall into as you disengage the predictive model. But certainly there are differences too. And maybe a a different way to describe it, I was imagining if we... If we think of the self, if we look at specifically ego dissolution, which is a very specific and common area of study in psychedelics, um, if you imagine the self as a sheet, like a white bed sheet, I imagine the psychedelic route to be one whereby you essentially poke so many holes in it. You poke so many holes that eventually it's as if the sheet isn't there. You've 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 relaxed the beliefs, you've relaxed the priors, you have uh, given yourself the capacity to imagine beyond the formal constraints. Um, whereas meditation simply kind of pulls the sheet away. And so both have this effect of, of the sheet, not quite being there in the way that it was, but Mm. I don't think that we can erase even the difference in effect that it's caused by the difference of approach. Um, so I, I, I find that such an interesting domain of research and we've been talking about, um, contrasting them like that, but certainly as, as I think you're, I know you're aware as well, there is a sect of, um, people let's say researchers who find it very interesting myself included to combine the two right so certainly we can point out the differences but let's say you take a bunch of acid and then sit down and meditate for an hour the way that these things can coexist with each other and kind of pile on top um, when they're in a kind of shared context of practice intentionality um, it is a, a really rich area of research that i think the next 20 years are just going to be unthinkably fruitful and i actually wonder y- you being formally in this space how how do you expect the next twenty years to, to be? Do you see a, a, a big kind of explosion in, in this stuff happening?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's sort of inevitable to see this uh, convergence between mm, meditation and psychedelics. I, I think I think that's that's a really exciting way forward in terms of human transformation and in in our, in our ability to induce states of high plasticity that allow changes to happen so i think that there's this enormous potential there but i also have this sort of um slight almost concern about it as well um Mm -hmm. because meditation especially intensive retreats is already such a um, profoundly strong potent psychedelic mm. in itself. Right. That um it's
0: destabilizing.
1: It it can be already really destabilizing. and Already we're seeing um a lot of research on the negative effects of med- potential negative effects of meditation. You know, it, people going on on met- strong meditation retreats or engaging with it at home as it's getting more and more popular, maybe without the necessary guidance or with too much intensity too soon or at any number of factors i mean there's so many ways that this can go wrong mm-hmm. but it's it's clear that this can lead to things like depersonalization derealization it can lead to even maybe traumatic experiences severe cases psychosis and this is just meditation you know And because when we look look at it from the perspective of predictive processing we've discussed it now you know, when we tell people be in the here and now, we, we we're actually telling them to do something extremely deep and extremely deconstructive to everything that they've taken to be real, and that's that's something we shouldn't take lightly, and perhaps something that already needs a lot of guidance, education, and um, and care, and. The psychedelic renaissance. As much as I'm excited about that, I think we're going to see. I mean, we've seen a kind of really negative turn with this. What happened in the ever since the '70s, basically, since yeah. we had the first sort of psychedelic wave of research. You know, that there was a huge exaggeration of the negative effects, and and we lost the opportunity to do this really important research that we're now doing, but. Although I think the data is really promising under these carefully controlled clinical environments and, and I am, I'm so in favor and excited about the treatment of, of depression and um, anxiety and, and obsessive compulsive disorder and all of these kinds of con- control-based psychopathologies using uh, psychedelics and psilocybin in particular, I am concerned about recreational really broad spectrum (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh recreational use of psychedelics i'm even a bit worried about some some meditation techniques getting too too prevalent i mean often these were kept to you know the the deeper stages of meditation practice even though i personally already talk about them really openly they were kept um kind of secret and and carefully uh taught to the student at the right time i think it's kind of too late for that now now we just have to be as transparent as as clear and as careful and wise with all of these practices we can because the information is simply out there there there's no way back you know we're we're way beyond that and that goes also for psychedelics but i do think we need to build into any kind of scientific thinking any kind of recommendation of widespread use and also any kind of goals we have of combining meditation and psychedelics this understanding that we're doing something yeah really we're, we're engaging in something really deep when it comes to the system and there's there's all kinds of ethical questions that also come out here because if we're putting the system into a state of let's just say really high plasticity where anything can kind of come out we there's a huge responsibility with the the set setting the kind of concepts that are around the kind of possibilities for new predictive hierarchies to emerge you know how do we know that we're setting up a, a, the circumstances in a way that the, the person reconstructs themselves productively hmm. and what is a what is a productive system i mean some right yeah, some models of of psychedelic therapy for example kind of take this neutral stance towards it and some some are more active but certainly when you think about the kinds of ayahuasca ceremonies that people engage in 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 shamanic context or in uh, some of them even have you know like if you take santo daimi they have uh, kind of this christian theology built into them as well Um, the container for the highly plastic experience is going to massively i think determine what kind of individual emerges on the other side and yeah. so so there's not this sort of inherent goodness to either meditation or psychedelics I think it's not it's not inherently good to deconstruct it's not inherently good to put the system into a state of high plasticity where high level beliefs are are, are taken away it it highly depends if that's productive on on the person the state of their system before they go into it and what kind of context we give for them so I guess this is just a lot of caveating for the rest of our conversation as well, but it is a—it's a genuine worry I have because I know firsthand, and I know through people I know, and I also know from the research that, um, yeah, that we're dealing with with really big, big changes to society and and tools that can occasion just enormous changes in individuals, and and there needs to be. Um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what there needs to be. Yet, but there, ne- <laughs> there needs to be some sort of carefulness with this, This, yeah. which, which otherwise I am so optimistic about and so excited for. but
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's very much been the story of whether you want to call it Western culture, whatever we call our shared culture here, the story of how we've engaged with meditation and with psychedelics alike uh, has been one of essentially trying to extricate them From the social and cultural context from which they came and were held for thousands of years if psychedelics Mm -hmm. were talking about indigenous societies um we sometimes literally went into for example mexican communities um, destroyed those containers took the mushrooms back and have tried to just deal with the thing itself and same with meditation we've gone in and we want to have buddhism without beliefs right we want to have buddhism it's not a religion it's a practice it's a and and i i i sympathize and i share these sentiments myself i I see the value in them and I find myself persuaded by them a lot, but it, you're so right to point out that what we are doing is stripping these things from the containers that held them. And we don't know what we are losing in that process. And by diving, if we dive head first, right? Uh, for, I'll take my own example there. If we start saying, okay, everybody take, you know, X amount of grams of psilocybin and go meditate. And we haven't spent a long time, years talking about, the kinds of containers we need to provide people the support in those really volatile environments, um, to, to have a a productive, a good, a wholesome experience rather than a negative one. Um, I think you're absolutely right. We need to have formal frameworks there. And it reminds me of, I mentioned this a lot on the podcast, maybe every episode now, but I think it's that important. Um, I, I mentioned Thomas Metzinger earlier. He, in one of his books, I think it was the ego tunnel. He closes it with this section that, that poses a question, you know, and it says, in this time, in this age, where we are getting better and better at transforming our own consciousness, whether directly through, you know, mainstreaming meditation and psychedelics or gene editing or nootropics, you know, all of these different uh, technologies, or kind of implicitly through a digital society that has the kind of media landscape and infrastructure that we do, or as I talk about all the time, having the particular kind of economic institutions we do and, and the way that kind of has a feedback effect with our cognition as we get better and better at transforming consciousness, we still lack, at least on his account, and I think he's onto something, we lack a framework to answer the question, what is a good state of consciousness? We're we're engaging in the deconstruction without a kind of what he calls a consciousness ethics, a, a rubric, a way to kind of beyond pure subjective experience, you know, pure nihilistic, whatever I say goes for me, how do we have a transpersonal way of talking about a good state of consciousness? What is that? And I, I don't think we're well-suited uh, to address that question, which is alarming because depending what tradition you're coming from, in many ways, uh, certainly uh, to me, this is maybe the most important question that we have in our lives. Um, so it's a really interesting blind spot, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I I think you put this so well. We need to know what we're replacing, mm-hmm. <laughs> This is the, replacing the framework with. If we're, if we're deconstructing a, a person's framework, whether it be through... Through psychedelic psychotherapy or meditation, what 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 are we replacing it with, and what, what do we want to replace it with? And and at least in these spiritual traditions, you know, there is a very careful training in in morality, in providing a set of values, a moral framework, and and certainly in Buddhism, there's a whole psychology there, um, and and this is certainly where. This, this is a kind of discipline-wide endeavor that's required where we, we come together across all the different levels of analysis, as you said, all the way from uh, economics to, to neuroscience to biology to social psychology, to start to and, and moral psychology, to start to build a picture of what is a healthy framework. And, th- and I don't think we want one healthy framework. I mean, we, of course, still want to make room for pluralism in frameworks mm-hmm. as well to, to give rise to a, an exciting and fun fun life. But in, in engaging these kinds of um, deeply transformative things, it, I think there's a real danger. And I see also this happen, that people get caught in basically constantly chasing states of high plasticity and deconstruction and this is a kind of meditation sickness in some traditions it's called where we, we get addicted to being in a state of um, flux or a state mm. of, of absence or a state of new New novel experiences and insight and and these are all dangers of these experiences because because we, we don't think about psychedelics as addictive and we don't think about meditation as as addictive in a physiological sense but but, but any experience can become an addiction right. any experience can become an addiction so all of these things we need to also be be very careful about
0: all right so zooming back out a little bit we actually began zooming out right right before The most obvious, if we go back to your model, the most obvious kind of so what of your theories, as we mentioned, was meditation can serve as a deconstructive practice and ultimately within the right frameworks can help raise the flexibility and richness of our cognition. When when you think about the way that you've put things in your model, and and say your model is upheld by future research, we were talking before before recording, and you mentioned this is this is a, a new model. It's it's brought things together in a new way, and what we're going to see is people adopt it and see if it's replicated and see if it holds. What what would a society look like that takes the implications seriously? I, I know that you've done some work on AI on education. Uh, you're an advisor to the OECD. Are there any institutions or policies or strategies for us as a society, so moving from individual practice to collective questions, that you think your work here might help us think through and ultimately apply, right? How, how would a society that takes us today as its starting point, but then deeply internalized the implications of your research here and your model, what would we do differently?
1: Yeah. One field of research and, and just area of life that i've been thinking about a lot is is education is the education system so i've also done some work on you know what the effects are of meditation on 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 learning um and then also on on yeah uh, uncertainty in general so one one way that i think predictive processing is interesting in the field of education is in kind of revealing what kind of world we're living in now so, and then and, and how the human mind has to deal with that and, and the struggles that come with that. So, there's this term called VUCA, and that stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Mm. And it's, it's a term that I think the US Army coined after the cold war sometime um but it, it kind of points to the idea that as the world is getting more globalized interconnected and, and the advances in technology that we're seeing um and the layers of complexity of having this sort of virtual reality thing happening on top of our ordinary reality right. um is making everything basically more volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous right and and from the if, if you think about the organism or the brain if 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 we take friston and and predictive processing seriously then the very imperative of the system is to reduce uncertainty and now we're being flooded with more uncertainty more vuca than ever and it's constantly getting worse you can kind of and this is speculative but you can see see why we're suffering so much and why we're seeing mental health basically deteriorating and and depression, anxiety, and stress levels just getting worse and worse. Because the very thing that the brain is trying to reduce is is increasing out in the world. And so this this relates to education directly because it's it's a huge problem for education to know how to prepare children and students for a world that's fundamentally unpredictable. We don't know what it's going to look like. And th- what we do know is that it's going to keep on changing right? and it's going to get more complex, more uncertain, and in a way more confusing for uh, the predictive system. So what do we, what do we do in, <laughs> in, in schools to, to deal with that? And, and I think it's, it's going to be really hard. Um, but I think some of the things that come out of, of our, paper and also another paper i've written you know is is that you know i think contemplative practice need, needs to be embedded into school i mean giving students some agency over their states of mind like mm. how fundamental is that and and how how liberating would it is it to to be willing to put yourself in in uncertainty when you know that you have the strategies and the capacity to return yourself into a state of balance should things get out of whack? So th- th- this, this, this permits a kind of inner agency to approach a world that is uncertain and constantly changing. If you know that there is there is a home base, that there are ways that you can recover a state of balance and ease and simplicity and quiet, a place where that complex predictive tree that we talked about right at the beginning is is briefly at least uh, put aside and we can come to rest and to, to have ease and to, to, to train that capacity from a young age. I think we almost have a moral imperative to, to do that, to, to, to teach kids to have some agency over their own states of consciousness, to be able to know that they can find uh, happiness mm-hmm. within, basically, to, yeah. to use a cliche. But also, I, th- I think we need to change the way that we teach in the sense that we need to, in general, imbue children with a sense of agency to, to solve problems themselves rather than to be passive in the classroom to get them out of this sort of yeah, sitting locked up in classrooms where we're as, as information receivers because that information, first of all, there's no way that teacher can keep up with the information landscape of today. So we need to sure. teach students instead to be able to be uh, independent problem solvers, to be able to find the information they need to integrate that information and then to, to apply it in moral ways and, and to behave in moral ways mm. with each other and other people.
0: That's a really interesting way to frame a problem with education there is that the the problem with our style now is that it relies on the capacity of the teacher to keep up with the information landscape that they're responsible to teach, which is going to get more and more difficult as we move on.
1: Yeah, there's simply no chance. There's no chance for the to have that old model where the teacher is the kind of beholder of of all the knowledge and and they just have to answer all the questions. We just need to give up on that model, I think, altogether. Um, And this means that the teacher doesn't lose their authority, but what they become is kind of a facilitator instead.
0: Hmm.
1: And and so instead they play a role where they help the students learn how to find knowledge. They help the students to learn how to solve problems and facilitate them in becoming agents and, and teaching them how to learn rather than what to learn and how to, how to transfer, how to adapt, how to be able to pick up a framework in for one context and then drop that framework for a new context. It's this kind of adaptability that is is necessary for a, an uncertain world, and it's not easy. It's 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 not going to be easy. And and this this adaptability, if if we're going to continue to live in the kind of cities that we have now, where it's it's going to need to be con- uh, complemented with with periods of silence and with periods of respite and really intentional periods of respite i d- i just don't see how someone can live in the kind of cities that i even live in right now being com- constantly engaged working crazy hours and then spending all their uh, most of the other time socializing and interacting and stay connected to a sense of ease a sense of okayness a sense of inner peace and stability i mean i know i'm not capable of it i know i (laughs) i need these practices i need this uh, uh, ability to step back and find that inner silence in order to then re-engage life in a way that i feel happy and, and that i'm not sacrificing myself completely
0: yeah personally too and listeners will know um I'm really drawn to this language of flexibility and rigidity within consciousness. And in particular, for me, this is a really nice place to connect cognitive science with questions of something like economic policy. I mean, there's there's a lot of scattered research at the moment, both in social sciences, but also, uh, at least theoretically in philosophy of mind, that suggests certain kinds of experiences can render consciousness itself more rigid, less autonomous, less um, less available for agency. And I've been really interested in thinking through how we can use or motivate particular economic policies aimed at reducing the prevalence of something like economic insecurity, for example, because or motivated by the idea um, that we can see it as a cause of cognitive rigidity. And the flip side of that is that the more secure people are economically, at least presumably to a point, to a threshold. It's probably somewhere where the marginal benefit decreases, but the more flexible they can become. And if you look at the possibility landscape of their lives, certain economic policies can open those landscapes by reducing certain kinds of rigidity that are systematically brought on by certain circumstances or institutions or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in the spirit of moving to something of a closing point here. If we imagine uh, a society that is predicated on the value of promoting cognitive flexibility and richness, I think that your work here is a wonderful nudge uh, towards helping us think through that both in theory, but also enacting it in uh, in practice, meditative or otherwise. And actually, you know, I'm reminded of uh, someone who wrote me an email recently, and I think they'd read an essay of mine or something. And the way that they described what resonated with them was the sense of what they called phenomenological urgency, right? This kind of urgency over what matters existentially being a phenomenological dimension that has been deeply neglected, that what it feels like to be alive matters so much, and yet has been so systematically not only left behind, but many would argue degraded. And I'm so heartened by work like yours that draws phenomenology back into the disciplines that it sort of was drained from like science Um, but i'll i'll leave that there and i'll I'll ask if there is anything in there that you wanted to respond to or if you have any lingering ideas overall anything else that you want to add into this mix
1: yeah i i just um i guess i just want to say that when i listen to you talk about these things I, i i'm just really enthusiastic about what you're doing and how you're thinking about consciousness, the mind, all the way up to the highest levels of analysis of, of economics and, and really seeing these connections. I think it's uh, really I- Im- impressive. And um, I- I'm really excited to engage in more of your work and to see see how, how that all unfolds. And I, I share, certainly, I-, I really resonate with your idea that financial insecurity and the way that we structure society is going to massively impact whether a person is rigid or or more flexible and ultimately we need to find some kind of balance where where the system provide, provides the the container for again i think a moral framework of action and 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 to contain the 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 counterfactualizing that it doesn't go completely unstable and there's there's uh, there's no sort of um, uh, direction for our uh, flexibility and at the same time not having uh, rigidity that's that's artificial or unnecessary or or harmful in the sense that we want to maximize positive flexibility and uh, minimize negative, rigidity and there might be positive rigidity and negative Mm. flexibility as well and so that's maybe something that i could add there but i I, I, in general i think this is such a exciting way to look at things and really difficult and requires such a a broad capacity to think so it's i'm I'm really happy to have these conversations and, and excited about your work yeah
0: and likewise uh wonderful uh, ruben thanks so much for for coming on the podcast and i really look forward to following more of your work
1: yeah thank you it's been a pleasure cool.
0: all right if you made it this far uh you might be interested in reading ruben's paper which i cannot recommend enough along with his other work, all of which you can find uh, linked on the episode page and then clicking on Ruben. In the next week or two, I'll be releasing uh, two add-ons to this conversation. The first is a reflection, where I'll take maybe five or ten minutes and just kind of expand on what I thought were the most interesting themes or ideas from the conversation. And the second is actually a a clip of Ruben that didn't make it into this audio file, but, but I find it incredibly interesting. You might have noticed that we sort of glossed over the question of what Carl Friston's free energy principle adds to the story of life that the standard kind of Darwinian model misses. And so that response, plus the episode reflection, are going to be available only to Patreon supporters. I'll publish them directly on Patreon, as well as link them in the the patron-only Discord channels. And finally, if you have any thoughts or reflections on the podcast, or especially ideas for potential guests... I am easy to get a hold of and I would love to hear them. You can email me using the contact form on the Music Mind website. All right. Uh, I hope you're all doing well and I'll talk to you next time.